Making Sense of the Digital Society A podcast with answers to the big questions of digitalization. For everyone who wants to be in the know about the many debates. But we are not only trying to make sense of the digital society, we are also demystifying some of its buzzwords. Making Sense of the Digital Society is also a series of live lectures in Berlin that I have moderated since early 2018. My name is Tobi Müller and I am the presenter of this podcast. We cover a wide range of questions, such as how do we want to actively shape a digital world? How can these processes be aligned with public interest? What kind of knowledge do we need for this? What are the underlying changes in society beyond the hype over new technological developments? What is power in the digital society and how is it distributed? Do services fueled by algorithms and artificial intelligence improve our lives or do they enforce social inequalities? And what role do cities play in this transformation like infrastructure and public goods? We combine summaries from the lecture series Making Sense of the Digital Society and conversations with international experts. You will hear renowned scientists talk about their research and discuss key issues. Their topics are diverse. Complex problems need attention from various disciplines in order to come closer to an understanding of the time we live in now and want to live in tomorrow. The most successful businesses of our time are based on the idea of platform services. Just think of Instagram, Uber, eBay, Airbnb and the seemingly never-ending list of platforms like these. The term platform describes software-based digital environments with open infrastructures. Their basic idea is to link people, organizations and resources. The so-called Big Five are Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple and Microsoft. This leads to the acronym GAFAM. The question of how platforms are regulated and in turn shape our communication is one of the great debates of critical digital research. This field is framed by the term platform governance and will take center stage in this episode. Even though online platforms play such a big part in our lives, they have, thus far, often bypassed the regulatory structures through which European democratic societies are organized. That's one reason for the ongoing debate with local, national and supranational governments over who controls data flows and algorithms. The following talk by Dutch scientist Jose van Dijk focuses on the position of the European Union versus the interests of a US-American-dominated ecosystem driven by a handful of tech corporations. Regarding the fact that Europe is squeezed between the two ecosystems made in China and the US, van Dijk argues that it is time to rethink the European architecture, design and governance of platforms. Jose van Dijk was born in the southern Netherlands. She is a renowned new media scientist and since 2017 a professor at Utrecht University. Before that she was chair of the Department of Media Studies at University of Amsterdam and the former dean of the Faculty of Humanities. Her latest book, The Platform Society, Public Values in a Connective World. In June 2019, Josef van Dijk gave her a talk titled Europe and Responsible Platform Societies as part of the Making Sense speaker series. 
She asks how we can anchor public values in an open digital society in Europe and how we can use data for a public good. Digital platforms, they, of course, we all know that, and that I assume to be some sort of, you know, common phrase, but they have created enormous benefits and very powerful global connections. Let me say that first of all, because I know, is there anyone in this room who has not been using one of the big five platforms over the, let's say, the past week? You must have been on vacation to some kind of remote area where they don't have, there's no connection to the internet or something. So anyway, we all know how much we have become dependent on these platforms. But since 2016, problems have been mounting for the tech companies. And you probably have heard about the tech lash, which has introduced that sort of, you know, mounting problems. We have been talking about disinformation and fake news a lot. Hate speech and trolling was much into the news. Um, we have heard much about the election intervention, particularly the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, it's probably still fresh on your mind, but that, as if that wasn't enough, we have had privacy scandals, we've had security leaks, and of course, totally different venue, we've had tax evasion and undermining of labor laws. And that, now I'm just stopping here because you would be totally depressed before I even have to start up the lecture. There's lots about, you know, addiction, etc., etc. My conclusion so far would be the long-standing values that promote an open society, and by that I mean tolerance, democracy, fairness, I will come back to that, they're compromised in the online world, and that's a world that is dominated by mostly American digital platforms. So my leading question today will be, how can we anchor public values in an open digital society or all the open digital societies in Europe? Pretty much how could we use data for the public good in an online world that is almost entirely dependent on a private American ecosystem of platforms? I will come to that. So over the next 40 minutes or so, I will take you through these four uh, uh, speaking points. This is sort of an outline. I will first explain to you what I mean by platform ecosystems, what I mean by public values. We're all talking about public values. What kind of values are they? Who are responsible actors in this digital society? And what particularly are the challenges of Europe? Uh, uh, Toby already pointed to that. Now, let me begin by explaining to you what platform ecosystems are. How do they operate and how do we encounter them in the wild? Pretty much in our global online world, you know, that is a world that is driven by platforms and those platforms are fueled by data flows. Now, platforms and data flows can be steered by companies, either companies or states. And the two platform ecosystems that dominate the online world are what I call the American platform ecosystem and the Chinese platform ecosystem. And of course, squeezed in between the US and China is this continent. And this, our European continent, has pretty much no major platforms. This one is the only major European platform in the global top 50. Anyone can guess which one it is? Yeah, Spotify. Actually, on that top 50 of uh, most important platforms, it's number 49, so it's not that big. But more importantly, it's no longer fully European. Tencent and Spotify have now minority shares in each other. Spotify is actually listed on the New York Stock Exchange. 
So, in short, for online infrastructural services, Europe has become largely dependent on the American platform ecosystem. And here you can read that this was actually, these numbers are from last year, the corporate headquarters of the largest players by market capitalization, they're very unevenly spread geographically. 47% located in Asia, 36% in North America, and 15% in Europe. And the most important thing is that of those 15% platforms in Europe, Europe has very few unicorns. Estonia has Skype, for instance, but that has now become Microsoft. Taxify has become a, quite a big one, has become a, unifor, uh, a unicorn. It's now owned by Volt, it's now called Volt. And AdGen, which is a Dutch company that is a pay service, which you may probably not know, but those are pretty big platforms. The problem is neither of those platforms have important infrastructural positions, and I will come to that in just a second. When we talk about platform power, it's very important to distinguish the various levels of platform power. It's actually distributed at three levels. And I compare that to a tree, just to stay in kind with the ecosystem metaphor. We have the roots, which is pretty much the internet architecture. It's the digital infrastructure of hardware, of ISPs, internet service providers, but also satellites and data centers, domain names. It's the big infrastructure that the whole tree basically relies on. Now, this part I have not, we have not included in our research. It was just too much because we have concentrated on the middle and the upper part of the tree, and that's the trunk and the branches. The trunk, by that I mean the infrastructural intermediary platforms. I will come to that in a second. And secondly, I will concentrate on the branches, which is pretty much the sectoral platforms. I will explain that to you in just a second. Most importantly, most important about this uh, slide is to remember that these, the big five company ownership is now distributed both among its roots, the internet architecture, as well as that intermediary level, as well as the sectoral branches where it's spreading its powers. Okay, so this is just a visual to remind you or to remember when we talk about platform infrastructure. It's a hard thing to imagine, but I try to make it more clear. In the GAFAM, American GAFAM systems, um, American platform companies are driven by, of course, by market value. In terms of market value, the big, these big five, they form the world's fifth largest economy after the US, China, Germany, Japan. But more important, I think, more important than market value, it's about societal power and influence. These big five increasingly act as gatekeepers to all kinds of social, economic, cultural, and personal online traffic. And that's what you also see in the branches. So our focus has been on the, the trunk and the branches and how these two interact, the intermediary and the sectoral platforms. Let's start with those intermediary infrastructural platforms. How do the big five companies actually wield those strategic platforms? And by that, I mean we have in, made an inventory of what those infrastructural intermediary platforms are. We have found some 70 that we would call infrastructural, but that's disputable. For instance, social networks like the Facebook Blue app, but also, of course, any other social networks. Web hosting, pay systems, identification services, cloud services, advertising agency, search engines, of course, operating systems, navigation, maps, 
messenger services, app stores, analytic services, and there's about 70 of those. Now, societies across the globe, and particularly also in Europe, they've come to depend on this infrastructure for organizing all kinds of societal sectors, right? So, and rather than having public infrastructures, we increasingly see that platformization also means privatization. Now, there's a big debate whether um, we should call these, particularly intermediary services, these infrastructural services, whether we should call them utilities because they have become privatized. That's a huge debate. I'm not going into that because it's pretty much a legal debate, but it's actually very difficult for lawmakers to define which platforms are utilities or infrastructures and which are not. So that's an incredibly refined you know, legal debate. Now, each of those platforms, well, the whole platform ecosystem, in fact, is built on commercial values. They're driven by market forces, the market forces of efficiency, monetization, and of course, dominance, because it's all about market dominance. But what about public values? That's what I stated in my initial questions. What about public values and the common good? Now, Europe, different from America and from uh, China, on the other hand, has substantial public sectors and public space, which pretty much seems to be absent from the American ecosystem. And public values appear to sit in tension, and that's why we've had, I think, those problems over the past few years. They sit in tension with the commercial values that structure GAFAM's architecture, the trunk particularly of the platforms. Now, first, before we continue talking about public values, what are we in fact talking about? What kind of values do I consider to be important uh, public values? First of all, those values are very basic values that pertain to our online interaction and online society. Values like security, transparency, accuracy, and privacy. We've heard much about that. You may expand this into values like autonomy, very basic human values. And these values, of course, they're not fixed. You're not, you can't go, just go to a store and you know, pick them off the shelf and buy them like they are. Values are often negotiated, and they're negotiated at different levels. For instance, when Google tries to implement its uh, educational platforms in schools, what we see happening is that privacy, the value of privacy of students may sit in tension with transparency. And that transparency may be a very valuable public uh, notion, because, for instance, schools could be opening up their data on children's progress to the public or to research. So those values may uh, sit in tension and needs, ne need negotiation. But beyond in, you know, those precise values, beyond internet and consumer values, there are public values that pertain to society as a whole. And those values, they're not exhaustive, but they include fairness, inclusiveness, responsibility, accountability, and of course, democratic control. And these values are negotiated at every single level, starting with the transnational level at Europe, at the state level, the local levels, but also at the institutional level, you know, all the way down to the professional codes that, for instance, teachers or journalists have anchored somehow in their societal, in, in how they perform their societal roles. Interestingly, or perhaps sadly, Connective platforms often bypass or ignore 
those you know sectors those where those values are negotiated for instance institutions or professional codes they go straight to individual consumers i was just talking about education what we're seeing is that individual schools are being offered uh, Google Apps for Education and even uh, Chrome laptops at very you know, low prices, 150 bucks, which is way underpriced, but that's of course because Google can earn it back in other sectors or through other uh, services. Facebook, for instance, it bypasses news organizations because it refuses to carry the label media company and hence it ducks regulation. So public values have become increasingly important, I think, not just to our European system, platform ecosystem, but to the entire world. And that brings up the bigger question, who is actually responsible for the platform society? You know, these public values, as I said, they don't just exist, they need to be negotiated at every single level. And the very simple answer to this question is, we are all responsible for governing the digital society. But analytically, and this is sort of you know, a lesson I took from um, Political Economy 101, analytically, there's three types of actors, market, state, and civil society, right? In China, as we just saw, state actors dominate. In the US, market actors dominate the stage. In Europe, ideally, there's an emphasis on civil society and state actors in balance with market actors. So, in fact, you know, there's a few simple rules in, in Europe. Data are preferably owned by their citizens. That's why we put so much emphasis on privacy. Um, European nations prefer to operate in multi-stakeholder organizations, so, you know, to balance off those three different uh, societal actors. But there's three problems with implementing public values in the European platform society. First, those civil society actors, they're systematically underrepresented in the ecosystem, and particularly in the infrastructural part of that ecosystem. Second problem, there's hardly any public space in the American platform ecosystem. Hardly any to come by. And the third problem is that data, um, you know, generated mostly by civilians, by citizens, by uh, users or uh, buyers, those data become mostly proprietary, so they cannot be used for the public good. So those are three major problems we have to deal with. We need to articulate value-centric principles at the European level. And now, this could be many different sort of principles, and I totally agree if you say you can't do that just top-down at the European level, but that's not what I mean. I By a few principles, I mean very you know, simple principles from which nations and local authorities and institutions uh, where they can actually look up to and say, okay, that's what we stand for. And then they can start negotiating uh, those public values themselves. So what kind of principles could those be? For instance, about data ownership. Very simple rule, four words, data belong to citizens. And that, of course, has everything to do with privacy, but you know, the, the, uh, on the other hand, open data belong to the public. And by open data, I mean that there is reciprocity between those, you know, who open up those data, and usually after that, they're becoming privatized, as I just showed in the educational world, by those companies. Re open data reciprocity means there's, it's a two-lane traffic, right? So that could be a very simple rule. 
Data portability. You can carry data around to different platforms. Very simple rule. We could have that at the European level and then work it into the various other you know, levels of implementation. Data transparency. Data flows could be regulated like money flows. We all, you know, found are perfectly comfortable with the fact that banks are being looked upon as, you know, they are in control of data flows and states are actually controlling through accountants, for instance, how those data, data flows are governed. We could do a similar, implement a similar sort of governance with data flows. Why not? We just have to, you know, be inventive. And finally, software ownership. Open source when open source is possible not simply you know, privatized by default, but if you put up open source as a viable alternative and also support it, I think that would may be, make a major difference. I think many of us, especially you know, people in Europe who have been complaining about American platform companies a lot over the past few years, I was one of them, if we feel squeezed between those two ecosystems, made in China, made in the USA, it's time to rethink our own architecture, our design, and the governance of platforms. Indeed, as I said, we're all responsible for creating a fair, open digital society. And by all, I mean, I don't know how many there are in this room, but engineers, I mean policymakers, I mean regulators, I also mean academics like myself, but particularly also civilians who care for the society they live in, who want to govern it democratically. I think we all need to collaborate on design and on governance of these platforms. The current tech lash, as I've just been describing or in the beginning of my talk, that tech lash doesn't necessarily lead into a dystopian future. I refuse to believe that there is necessarily, this brings us into some kind of dystopia. And I see very encouraging signs coming from public counterpower. In the online world, we see many local initiatives, for instance, taken by the city. I'm now involved with several of these initiatives in the city of Amsterdam, several cities in the Netherlands, uh, with uh, public broadcast systems and a lot of public uh, organizations who want to collaborate and uh, provide alternatives. We need those initiatives and need to support civil society efforts also raising awareness at both the national level and the uh, supranational level. And I really believe over the past year, um, I think actually after we fit, had already finished the book, so it, I'm so sorry I couldn't put it in anymore, but I really believe there has been more awareness and more consciousness about what non-profit civil sector uh, society actors could do on this level. So... On closing with that hopeful note, uh, there's certainly a lot of hope in that area, and the idea of platform counterpower will hopefully be the topic of my next book. So I will leave you with that thought. Van Dyke points to the chances for non-profit civil society sectors to be counterpowers to a one-dimensional platformization. The question remains what these could look like. Therefore, it might be helpful to understand the rulemaking in the digital space as it works today. This is where our next conversation comes in just right. Here, Christian Katzenbach answered the questions of Wouter Bernhardt. 
Christian Katzenbach is Professor of Media and Communication and a Center for Media, Communication and Information Research at the University of Bremen and Associated Researcher at the Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society, HIG. Focus areas of his research are the governance and regulation of platforms, discourses of artificial intelligence and the increasing role of data, algorithm and digital infrastructures in organizing communication and social interactions. In the following conversation titled Governing the Internet, Katzenbach explains what governance exactly means and what exactly we are trying to govern or regulate when we talk about governance. He will also speak about the increasing importance of AI, artificial intelligence, as part of the solution-seeking for the regulation of online platforms. How did you become the Internet guy, as you said yourself? <laughs> I think it's maybe it's maybe it's two things. I mean, I've always been interested in um, computers and technology in general, but I was I was always kind of in between, kind of being the technology guy and being the humanities guy. I mean, socially, I was also more with the humanities people, but I mean, from the the intellectual interest, I was strongly also on the side of mathematics and computer science um, already back then. So I always wanted to study. Um, and develop a professional life that kind of connects these two, these two elements. Now I can imagine that the internet issues were a bit different back when you went at the FU. Uh, could you tell me a little bit how these have changed, maybe from the moment you started researching them? Well, I, I mean, I wrote my master thesis on blogs and the change of the public sphere in that context. So it's not too different. I mean, so the social media platforms um, were not, they were not really there. They started to, to become dominant players. So that was 2007. And then I started to work at the Freie University as a researcher and doctoral candidate and starting to think about writing something more about governance, um, internet governance and the governance of then social media more and more. And so that, that was probably the biggest change that, yeah, the emergence of the social media platforms as the key dominant players in, in that field. So I think that is the most pressing change that we have observed in the last 15, 15 years. One of the, of course, pillars of your research is about governance. I just intuitively imagine there's just way more regulation about any sort of these platforms nowadays than there was maybe 10 years ago. Am I done completely wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, we've, especially in the last three years, I think, since um, the, the US election and also the migration issue in Europe, we've seen a lot of pressure on the social media platforms to take responsibility for the content they host and distribute. And in that context, we've seen a lot of initiatives, both in terms of kind of hard regulation, like laws regulations, but also in terms of kind of soft initiatives that want to push them towards more responsibility. So um, self-regulation of the platforms, for example, at the EU level, the, the platforms have kind of signed an agreement that they want to take terrorist content offline within one hour, if it's already identified, or within 24 hours um, for other content. So these are some, some examples. And I think generally regulation is struggling with kind of grasping these platforms as new entities, 
because they are kind of both different from traditional media companies that host their content, not only, but also produce the content. Um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we used to have like these channels or common carrier companies like cable companies that um, you could argue that just kind of channel the content towards the users and that that were not liable for the content they distributed. Um, and the platforms, you could argue, are somewhere in between, and we haven't yet found really good um, ways to regulate them in that space. Um, now, you say you there need, or there is more debate around governance and regulations. What, what does that mean exactly? What, what are we trying to regulate, and what tools do we have to, to do that? So I think there's broad consensus now, more or less, that the platforms have to take more responsibility for the content they host. And the question that is really hard to answer is, how do we put that into concrete regulations? Um, so the, the legal term, you could say, for responsibility is liability, that they are really held liable for the content they host. And the traditional or the the way we, we regulated them that until um, until very recently was that the platforms are generally not liable for the content they host, but only upon notice. So in the US, that's called the notice and takedown procedure. So they are freed from liability as long as nobody kind of points them to content that might infringe copyright, that might be illegal, or that might be kind of plainly uh, wrong or for, for some other aspects. And from that moment, they need to take action in one way or the other. So liability only starts kind of very late. And now we're seeing the last, last year some initiatives from different policy actors to change that structure. And from my perspective, it culminates in the EU directive on copyright that was really contested um, during the last two years and that now will come into um, execution um, next year. And that uh, copyright directive, you could say, kind of changes this paradigm of liability so that the platforms very early on start to be liable, responsible for the content they host. So this is kind of a, a departure from the notice and takedown procedure. And critics say that this is a strong incentive for the platforms to be really strict about the content that they host and that it will definitely have a negative impact on creativity and plurality of content so that they will become, you could say in a very easy argument, that they will become kind of, again, cable companies that just host professional content that they license and that they can be kind of really secure that they don't infringe any copyright, any personality rights or other things that might, they, they might be sued on. Yeah, I just wanted to think or say that if you put regulations on a platform, not only will they maybe try to do their best to apply these new regulations, but it might just fundamentally alter what the platform is. Yeah, I think definitely that's a good, I mean, that's a good question or a good point. By the very, I mean, you could say, or we would say as, as academics, maybe would say this, 
this search for the right regulation in a way is also performative. It's not kind of a, a search for the right solution, but it changes the very object of regulation, as you, as you hinted. Um, so the question, what, what are platforms at all? I mean, and, and how, what, where are they positioned at that spectrum, for example, between, as I said, between media companies and um, cable companies? We are, we are trying to, to figure that out, and by regulations that, that now come up, we're also defining the platforms as, as actors that host content and that are not, are, are, not, are not liable for the content that they host. And with that, we give them incentives to move in that direction or the other one. And um, I think we have seen many um, changes also by some, by some of these social media platforms that go into to that direction. Another pillar of your research is how artificial intelligence plays a role into this. You were telling me earlier the idea that, for example, uh, Mark Zuckerberg says uh, when he has to answer to Congress to, in the United States saying like, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, all these things are going horrible. You need to do something. And then what does Mr. Zuckerberg say? Yeah, apparently in that in that hearing that was not I mean it wasn't too long, he said I think like a dozen times and really a dozen times, uh, AI will fix this or something like in the future we will have technologies in place to address or even solve these issues. So of course that's one of the directions that the platforms are pursuing in responding to this pressure in saying and also also kind of working on that on technologies that sift through these very large amounts of content that they host and of course that's a perfectly legitimate way of addressing that i mean they have so much users and so much content that they that they host yeah it seems like a really a monstrous task to monitor all that that content And so technology is, it might be one solution, at least they, they, they think that, because it scales so well. So if you take persons to monitor that content, you need to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people to monitor all that content. But if you have kind of one system, one massive system, technological systems, there is, a, there is a difference between hosting like thousands of videos and and billions and trillions of, of videos, but once the system is in place, um, you could scale up very, very easily or rather easily. So that's, of course, one route that they follow. And it's uh, in this kind of culture of Silicon Valley, of course, always the route to follow, because that's, that's one of the key themes of, of all those Uh, U.S. startups and also European startups that they want to kind of solve social problems with technological solutions. And uh, even though you're saying it's only part of the solution, one of the other pillars of your research group, your research, your own research, is the increase in AI as as a, a part of this solution seeking and the increase of platforms using that. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit how you see that? Um, yeah, going to develop in the next years, decades. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to kind of follow closely these debates and discourses about. AI, generally, you could say, I mean, of course, you could say on the one hand, well, it's just another hype. And we've seen a lot of technological hypes, generally, but also specifically with AI. So there always have been 
promises and concerns with regard to um, AI, um, starting from the 60s, actually. And um, there have been a lot of ups and downs. People call it AI winters and summers, or springs even, at some point. So there's a lot of up and down in that. Um, and so certainly there there's hype around AI currently, but I think this hype is highly relevant currently because we as societies push so many resources into these technologies, but also in this general debate about ethics also and governance of AI, that I think that what we're currently witnessing is a kind of the making of 21st century AI, as my colleague Michael Costell in the, in the UK uh, calls it. And um, generally, I think we are at that point where all those digital technologies and now more and more complex systems that are labeled AI often are really deeply integrated into our cities, into our pockets by means of our smartphones and kind of really around us in many aspects, also in the medical sector, for example, or in the judicial sector. So in, in many, many sectors and domains of society, these systems are being integrated into our societies. So in a way, you could say kind of we're building the infrastructures of the next decades currently. And in one way, you could compare that with the city development, for example, in Europe in the late 19th century, where kind of the city as we know them today has been kind of built up with these big city blocks and then the streets in between that more or less kind of still dictates how we kind of move around. How do you see the choices that are being made today have an impact on how we will use AI in the future? Do you have any idea of, of a certain specific choice we're making right now that you think like, oh, this will have an impact, a long-lasting impact on years to come? I mean, for me, it's always um, important to point to the fact that technology is I think almost never a functional solution to a given problem, but we tend to to consider technology in public debate and also in, in our everyday interaction with it as just that device or service that always has been there or that is maybe new, but it's just as it is. So we take it more or less for granted as it is. And it does meet demands and it is a solution to certain problems, but we don't, in the kind of broad uh, way, reflect that technology always could be different. So the way our smartphones today are or this, our cities are, how our mobility devices are, the cars, for example, they all could be different. If the discussion on platform governance has piqued your interest, you may also want to listen to the episode Squeak Clean Internet of the HIG podcast, Exploring Digital Spheres. In their conversation, Wouter Bernhardt and Martin Riedel discuss how platforms try to keep the Internet clean of unwanted content and what unwanted means in this context. The work of keeping platforms clean is mostly done by so-called moderators. What does it imply for the moderators when they click through tons of visual content every day and have to decide whether to take it down or not? This is one of the questions explored in the documentary The Cleaners, which portrays people who do the job of moderators in the Philippines. You can find a stream of the film on the website of the Federal Agency for Civic Education.
All materials mentioned in this podcast and a large number of other interesting resources can be found at hiig.de slash making minus sense and bpb.de slash digital society in one word. Making Sense of the Digital Society is a production of the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society and the Federal Agency for Civic Education. My name is Toby Müller and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Editing and production, Christian Graufogel and Filine Janus. Executive producer, Christian Graufogel. Sound design and recording, Juri Bader. <laughs>